1: is The Andrew Logan Show, brought to you by True North.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. It is Tuesday, November 8, 2022. You are tuned in to another live edition of the program. I'm back in my home studio here as the Public Order Emergency Commission moves beyond Organizer Week to a week where they're shining the spotlight on what happened in Windsor and Coots. And we're still going to cover it. I'm going to have an update later on in the program on some of the key takeaways takeaways from yesterday's and today's testimony but there's a lot of other stuff happening and, and I want to be very clear here as we talk about what happened in Windsor which was a, a very different animal from what happened in Ottawa. One of the big things that the government really held to was the cost of trade, the value of trade that was moving across that border every day, supposed to be moving across the Ambassador Bridge, which was brought to a standstill for that one weekend. And I don't want to diminish this because what happens across the border is incredibly significant. I am from southwestern Ontario. I've crossed the Ambassador Bridge many times in my life. You always see trucks that bring them back. Auto parts, groceries, a number of other things. Billions of dollars worth of trade. Or uh, actually, as the new unit of metric goes, millions of dollars worth of Disney Plus subscriptions. Millions of, of Disney Plus subscriptions every day cross the border back and forth. That is the new unit of measurement in the inflationary economy. How many? Uh, how much does it cost uh, No, no, no. Give it to me in Disney Plus subscriptions. This is, of course, uh, courtesy of Chrystia Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister and Prime Minister who's been posting deficits worth many, many Disney Plus subscriptions, talking about what Canadians can do to withstand these inflationary pressures. This was our Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister's advice.
1: I personally, as a mother and wife, look carefully at my credit card bill once a month. And last Sunday, I said to the kids, you're older now. You don't want to watch Disney anymore. Let's cut that Disney Plus subscription. So we cut it. It's only $13.99 a month that we're saving, but every little bit helps.
2: Now Christia Freeland makes somewhere in the range of memory serves of like $270,000 a year. So not an insignificant sum. $270,000 a year uh, divided by the uh, $13 a month for a Disney Plus subscription. That is 20,769 Disney Plus subscriptions a year that Christia Freeland makes. Now, she was roundly mocked for this comment online, and I'd say rightfully so, and to be fair, the advice itself of auditing your household expenses and cutting what you don't need is not bad advice. The problem is that Canadians are already doing that. Canadian mothers, Canadian fathers are already faced with it. The problem is not that they don't know what they're spending money on. The problem is they know exactly what they're spending money on because every time they go to the grocery store, things that they used to be able to buy without even looking at the price are now things where they have to question, is this really something I need? And with Christmas coming up, the issue is not going to be solved by just cutting the Disney Plus subscription. So as I said on Twitter, Disney Plus is the new avocado toast, where it's the thing that someone from a place of economic privilege tells you is really this superfluous, extraneous thing that you don't really need that doesn't actually deal with what the source of your problems are. Now, to Minister Freeland's credit. She seemed to understand this. And when you're getting attacked by the left and the right in this country, generally speaking, I think it's safe to say that you are not the bastion of unity. You are just someone who has managed to step in it profoundly. But she did amend her comments yesterday by talking about, in true woke language, how she has to recognize her privilege.
1: Look, I think I will want to start by really recognizing that I am a very privileged person, for sure. Uh, Like other elected federal leaders, um, I am paid a, a really significant salary, and I know that that puts me in a really, really privileged position. And I really recognize that it is not people like me, people who have my really good fortune, who are struggling the most in Canada today. The people who are struggling in Canada today with today's high prices aren't people like me. They're not federally elected politicians. They are people across the country who earn a low income who really do find that today's high prices mean they have to make difficult choices about what food to buy, about whether to buy groceries or pull together the money to pay the rent. So I 100% recognize that and in fact it is that recognition which shaped so much of the fall economic statement
2: To be fair, I don't think there's anything wrong with what she said right there. I mean, the fact that she has this condescending tone whenever she says anything might just be an aspect of how she communicates and how she delivers remarks. I think it was a much more tone-aware and self-aware comment than her comment about how, oh yeah, we're all struggling. You know, I could only afford 21,000 Disney Plus subscriptions, so we decided to cancel our Disney Plus subscription last month. And by the way, I, I mean... There's a difference between doing it because you think it's prudent budgeting and doing it because you have to. And that was why the remark was so tone deaf, because we're not talking about cases right now where people are looking at which discretionary items they want to live without to save a bit. We're talking about people that don't even have the benefit of discretion where they have already trimmed down their expenditures so much because they have to, not because they want to, not because they're choosing to, because they are being forced into this. And I'm sorry, but when people are going to the gas station and not able to afford to fill up their tank because they just went grocery shopping or vice versa, they, you know, can't afford to go grocery shopping because they decided that they could get to the grocery store and that used up all their gas, especially in rural areas where people who want to load up on Costco runs or whatever are driving an hour, an hour and a half. This is not an inexpensive thing. And people are forced to make very difficult choices. And to be fair, when Christian Freeland was asked, what's your advice to those people? There isn't any, because the problem is not the people's. The problem has not been brought on by these people. The problem has been in part unleashed by global economic circumstances, but exacerbated by government. A government that has increased the carbon tax this year, a government that talks about tax relief and giving people their own money back, but a government that isn't actually interested in not spending money, a government that is adding to these pressures. So there is no answer. And that's why things are going to get, and I hate being the bearer of bad news, so much worse before they get better, because we're not at the point where some little nifty household budgeting tip is going to get you out of this financial hole. Government, which has stopped you from working if you've worked in certain sectors for much of the last two years. Government, which is putting more regulatory charges and more taxes on you while claiming it's not. Government, which is still spending money it does not have. And taking that money in the form of just running off the cash printing machines and also taking it from people that are ostensibly, in the government's eyes, able to withstand a little bit of an extra tax burden, but are still themselves struggling. It's that government that has to own up to its role in this. And it's so insulting that this minister, this finance minister, thinks she can relate to what ordinary people are going through right now. And she says, oh, yes, it's her privilege and her understanding of how difficult it is that has informed the fall economic statement. Well, let's look at the fall economic statement because uh, Christian Freeland says, oh, yeah, we're on track to balancing the budget. Don't worry about those hundreds of billions of dollars. Sorry, uh, you know, tens of uh, billions of Disney Plus subscriptions of deficits that the government has been racking up. Uh, We're we're on track to balance it by uh, 2027, 2028. So she's convinced that in the next seven years, will be at balance. Well, if you talk to the Parliamentary Budget Officer, which is uh, ideally more responsible about its calculations because it's not rooted in partisanship, uh, they're saying that the revenue in that budget is going to be $11.1 billion lower than what the government is projecting. And interest charges are going to be $2.8 billion higher, which means the year of balance budget in 2027-2028 that Christopher Freeland is promising is going to be a year with a little tiny, teeny, itsy-bitsy $10 billion deficit. A $10 billion deficit, or to keep with the trend here, uh, that is a uh, $83.3 Disney Plus subscription deficit. Uh, My math's a little rusty there. You'll have to bear with me. Uh, Franco Terrazano joins me on the line now, the federal director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Franco, good to talk to you. How bad was this update in your
0: view? Oh, it was really bad. You know, I was expecting it to be bad, but I wasn't expecting it to be this bad. And before we really get into the nitty gritties, I have to address the opening segment off the top with uh, the finance minister's gaffe, because there's also four points that all taxpayers need to remember when we hear this statement statement from Freeland. Number one, Freeland as a minister, her annual salary is just under $280,000 to your earlier point, Andrew. Number two, Freeland, like all other members of Parliament, gave themselves three pay raises during the pandemic. So are we really all in this together? I don't think so. Point number three, Freeland's talking about the increasing cost of living. Well, Freeland is making life more expensive in Canada with her tax hikes, carbon tax up, payroll taxes up, alcohol taxes up, and her crazy out-of-control deficit spending. Point number four, and this ties into the fiscal update, we're hearing Freeland talk about finding uh, household savings in her household budget, right, Disney Plus. Well, why can't you do that in the federal government budget? What taxpayers yeah, are actually Yeah, I, I, I her want for. her to cancel
2: the government of Canada's Disney Plus subscription. I don't care what she does in her own household budget, and I'm I'm not sure she's doing that. I mean, the obvious comparison is CBC, which is 1.4 billion dollars a year, depending. I mean, 1.2 to 1.4. Uh, so I, I, as a Canadian taxpayer, would happily cut my portion of the CBC subsidy uh, before I cut my Disney Plus or my Netflix or whatever else I'm subscribed to. Crave maybe.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely, and here's the thing, right? Uh, Leading up to this fiscal update, we heard Freeland talk about the government's fiscal restraint, how they're going to be spending uh, with prudence. We didn't see any of that in the fiscal update. Here's what we saw. Somehow, Freeland is going to spend $20 billion over budget. Let me just read you the numbers. Let me break down the numbers here. In the April budget, Freeland said the government would spend $452 billion. Now, in the fiscal update, seven months later, Freeland says the government will spend $472 billion. So the math is simple here. Freeland is spending $20 billion over her budget. Now, this was a budget that she penned seven months ago. And it's not like that budget in April was this extreme austerity budget. No, 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 no. The government was going to spend $90 billion more compared to pre-pandemic and all-time highs. Right? So she's overspending her own budget just seven months ago by $20 billion, Andrew.
2: Yeah, and I think that it's very important to note that we haven't seen many radical or at least unpredictable changes in the financial situation in that time. We've known where interest rates were trending. We've known where inflation was trending. So uh,
0: this was, I think, entirely foreseeable. Well, and here's another thing too. You know, you, you've mentioned this, but I don't think taxpayers should buy uh, the spin that the government is going to balance the budget in 2027. I mean, we'd love to see a balanced budget, but if you just look at the numbers, I, I don't think that is credible at all. Uh, because as you mentioned, the Parliamentary Budget Officer released its budget projections only a few weeks ago. And it shows that in 2027, well, Freeland's fiscal update is overestimating revenues by $11 billion, underestimating the interest charges on the government debt, by just under $3 billion. So in 2027, if you use the parliamentary budget officers, revenue and interest charge figures, instead of balancing the budget, the government would have a $9.4 billion deficit. And of course, Andrew, the Trudeau government has not seen a budget that it couldn't blow. (laughs) Right. Remember back in 2014, Trudeau said the budget would balance itself. Well, what time is it right now? What, 4.17 p.m. November the 8th, uh, 2022? The budget still hasn't balanced itself. Remember when Trudeau was first running for prime minister? He said he'd run a few modest deficits and then balance the budget in 2019. Well, he missed that by $20 billion, even before the pandemic.
2: Yeah, and I think that's an important caveat. And and you and I have spoken about this in the past, that the government has used the pandemic as cover for its spending without acknowledging openly that the spending was already pretty out of control beforehand and I think that there is a general tendency for the government here to not accept its own role and I I think that point of Christia Freeland's is an important one for us to acknowledge because she's talking about combating inflation as though it's the kind of thing you do on an individual level by making choices but that is not dealing with the causes of the problem that are within uh, the government's control on a macro level like for example the carbon tax which is a purely discretionary tax there is, uh, this is money that the government is putting forward not for revenue collection according to its own definition but because they're trying to change behavior which means the government could live without that money because they're claiming that it's not even a tax
0: did i hear you correctly andrew did i hear you say that spending uh before the pandemic was pretty out of control uh that was that might be the biggest understatement i've ever heard uh before the pandemic the trudeau government was spending all-time highs even after including uh, inflation and population differences. So that means that the Trudeau government in 2018 spent more money than the feds did during any single year during World War II. Inflation and population adjusted. Before a pandemic, before any uh, countrywide recession, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spent more money than the feds did during any single year while we were fighting the Nazis. Okay, so uh, we were spending all time highs before the pandemic and then a pandemic comes around. Well, I think most Canadians understand that, look, if you have a legitimate problem, if you have uh, a leaky roof, let's say you fix the leak, the leaky roof. But you don't go pull out the credit card and blow money that you don't have on a new flat screen, a couple ATVs and brand new BMW. Right. You prioritize. But we didn't see the federal government make any Uh, tough decisions. Even the parliamentary budget officer says that of all the new spending that has been announced since COVID-19 started, $200 billion had nothing to do with COVID-19. Now, I'm glad you brought up the carbon tax because you know what? I think the Trudeau government, every time they, they pass a gas station, they pat themselves on the back because they see the high pump prices. Because a carbon tax, its objective is to raise the price of gasoline. And while Ottawa has continued to raise taxes on Canadians, we identified 51 other national governments that actually did the right thing and cut taxes during the pandemic. Or to combat inflation? Yeah,
2: I think that's very, very important. And it's funny when you talk about these issues, the government gets very, uh, gets very sensitive about them. I want to play a clip from your uh, testimony before a parliamentary committee the other day, and I'll I'll let you explain and contextualize it afterwards here, because sometimes people just need to see the brazenness with their own eyes first.
3: The increases in premiums for EI and CPP are needed to make sure that when people lose their jobs, in the case of EI, or when people retire, when our seniors retire, that the funds are there to ensure that they can collect their pension, or in the case of EI, that they can collect EI. So the effect of not increasing those premiums with the demand for those for EI and CPP would mean that when people retire or when people lose their jobs, they would not have the funds needed to collect EI. The funds wouldn't be there, certainly to keep up with demand, their their needs, but also with inflation. And that would apply to CPP as
0: well. Um, Are you concerned about that? What I'm so concerned about are so many Canadians who, in the private sector, just took it on the chin for two plus years while the people who are supposed to be the representative gave themselves pay raise after pay raise after pay raise and not just that, raise the carbon tax, raise payroll taxes, raise alcohol taxes and then play word games with Canadians using magic math when the government's own independent budget watchdog shows that the cost of these tax hikes like the carbon tax is costing the average household hundreds of dollars this year even after the rebates. I'm concerned with the tax hikes. I'm concerned that all of this burden is falling on those hard-working Canadians who lost their job during the pandemic while members of Parliament gave themselves pay raises, while 300,000 bureaucrats received pay raises, while failing crown corporations gave out bonuses and pay raises during the pandemic. So Thank I'm very, very concerned much. about the tax. Thank funds. you very
3: much. I've heard you. So I hear that you're not concerned about the pensioners and the PEI recipients who wouldn't receive their funds. That's what I've heard you just say. It sounds to me like um, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is actually not supporting the very taxpayers who uh, who would struggle the most in an inflationary environment in a circumstance where, in the circumstance where they do retire and where they do lose their jobs? And I think that's really, really disappointing. Well, I'd like I'm to move on to up- that. That wasn't a question.
2: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ooh, stone cold. That wasn't a question. So just that little uh, grenade that they throw and don't even let you respond. When was that, by the way?
0: Oh, this was just, uh, I think this was, what, October the 26th, I think is when I was presenting in front of the Finance Committee on the CTF's uh, budget recommendations. And why was it that you think that such a sore spot when you point out what the
2: government's payroll taxes are, are doing to people that they're claiming to protect?
0: Oh, well, I know exactly why. I was essentially there telling them they're doing a bad job, saying, hey, you're wasting way too much money and you're raising taxes at the worst possible time. Andrew, remember, at these type of, like, uh, build-the-budget-type meetings, they hear, these members of Parliament, hear from, what, hundreds of individuals and groups asking for more money? Well, I was there on behalf of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation telling them to spend less money, telling them to stop wasting money. So I, I told them, hey, s- stop spending 8800 bucks. On a sex toy show in Germany. Yeah, that happened. Uh, Stop spending nearly $100,000 on fancy airplane food during a week-long trip, right? Don't spend $6,000 a night on a hotel room. Uh, Stop giving former Governor's General a $200,000 expense account for life. Um, you know, stop taking pay raise after pay raise after pay raise while the people that you're supposed to represent struggle through a pandemic. And, you know, stop giving buckets of cash to big corporations. Like, no more announcing $295 million for the Ford Motor Company, or more than $300, or more than $300 million, sorry, for Bombardier. So I was essentially there saying, hey, you guys are doing a bad job, you're wasting money like crazy, and you're raising taxes making life uh, much more difficult for so many Canadians. So that's why they're getting a little uh, or trying to get a little feisty with me.
2: I just have to point this out. I just got a push notification on my phone because the, uh, the markets closed, of course, uh, uh, half an hour ago. And uh, for the Wall Street Journal, costs tied to Disney streaming service weighed on earnings, even as theme parks brought in record revenue. Shares fell 6% after hours. Look at what she's, she's tanking the Disney share price by telling Canadians to get rid of uh, their Disney Plus subscriptions. Uh Franco terrazano Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always a pleasure. Hope they invite you back to uh, Parliament soon. Hey, so do I. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. All right. Thank you. I, that's actually hilarious. I'm not saying that she w- was responsible for it, but I am going to say that it makes a fun tweet to blame her for it anyway. It's uh, the epitome of fake news, but I'm going to say satire. Elon Musk, don't take me off Twitter. I'm just joking. This is quite fascinating to me. And and when you talk about the gap between the people that are the governed and the people who are the governors, it, it seems to be growing ever wider. And uh, you know me, I'm not fond of conspiracy theories, but to say that Christian Freeland is on the board of Governors for the World Economic Forum is a a statement of fact. And I think to raise questions about what it means that she is a a minister of the crown, supposedly beholden to Canadian taxpayers and to uh, King Charles's uh, government in Canada. And she's also on the board of this global organization that has a a very aggressive policy agenda that I think is at odds with people in Canada's uh, needs. And when you ask that question, you are lumped in with the conspiracy theorists. And I should say, I'm heading back to the World Economic Forum in January, uh, continuing our coverage that we did in May, asking the questions there, uh, calling out these policies that are very aggressively anti-oil and gas, anti-business, pro-carbon tax, and all of these things which are genuinely fueling this cost of living crisis that governments claim. I mean, before they used to say transitory. Now they don't say that. Now they just say you can get through it by canceling your Disney Plus subscription and what have you. I want to shift gears a little bit. I am going to get in a couple of moments to the Public Order Emergency Commission and what's been happening today. But I have to start, before we go there, on something of an indulgent note. Now, I should say, I don't fancy myself an elitist, but I was in Ottawa last week covering the Public Order Emergency Commission hearings in person, and I flew to Ottawa and flew back. And the interesting thing about this decision is that uh, when COVID came along and travel uh, travel things were disrupted, there used to be a direct flight from London, Ontario to Ottawa that they cancelled. It was uh, an Air Canada flight and you could go from London to Ottawa, you'd be there in an hour and a half or so, and that no longer exists. So if you want to fly anywhere, you have to fly from London to Toronto, which is a 22 minute flight and then from Toronto to wherever you want to go. And when you do this, you don't actually have to pay any extra usually. the It's a lost leader for Air Canada because they know that it's a convenient thing. It uh, lets people, uh, they, I think the, the line that the airport uses is like your gateway to the world or something schmaltzy like that. But basically the whole point is it's a 22-minute flight that's basically free, doesn't cost you any extra than had you just flown out of Toronto, but saves you the two-hour drive and parking at Toronto Airport and all of that. All of this is a lengthy preamble to this story here, where when I was coming back home on Friday night, got on the plane in Ottawa, landed in Toronto, everything fine, and then my flight from Toronto to London gets cancelled. And the reason it was cancelled was crew restraints, which is just one of these terms they use for whatever reason. But then all of a sudden, I'm in Toronto. I don't have a car there. It's late at night. It was like around... Uh, I think eight, uh, no, it was uh, eight or nine o'clock, whatever time it was. And I am uh, not able to get home to London as planned that night. So I get the notification from Air Canada, though, that we've rebooked you on a flight that leaves at 6 p.m. Well, this was Friday at like 9 p.m. And they're rebooking me on a flight that leaves at 6 p.m. I should say 6 p.m. on Monday. (laughs) So three days later for a flight that is 22 minutes in length. And just because I was uh, feeling a little bit creative, I decided to look it up and I determined, as you can see here, and I pointed it out on Twitter, I could have walked from the Toronto airport to the London airport in uh, just over 33 hours, which is less than half of how long it would take me if I were to wait to take this flight from Air Canada. So uh, what, what ended up happening is I took a taxi and Air Canada agreed to pay for the taxi ride. So that's all sorted out. But I shared this just because I feel it was kind of an amusing thing. I wasn't trying to make a point. I was trying to make, I guess, a little bit of a point about Air Canada's customer service. But there was really like nothing to this story, except this is an amusing thing that happened, having to wait three days for a 22 minute flight and oh my goodness did people online absolutely lose their minds over this a couple of people said oh yeah that sucks i understand some people went absolutely bonkers about this and i want to read a couple of these uh this one is from adam l who says andrew down with those elites also andrew can you believe they dared to cancel my 22 minute flight well I don't see how that's like an elitist thing. It's like I've paid for a service. I, I've paid for this thing. And that's that. Hucana writes, next time, think about carbon footprint and take a train. Well, I got in at nine o'clock. The train does not leave from Pearson Airport. The train leaves from downtown. And the last train also left like a couple of hours earlier. So then I would have had to stay overnight. And whew, I might have had to emit more emissions to uh, go to the hotel room there. Uh, one person, Crampy Grifter, I don't think that is uh, Crampy Grifter's uh, legal name. Campy Grifter, Crampy Grifter says, Andrew, it's like a two and a half hour drive. I can come pick you up if you buy me a coffee. That was a very kind offer, but I didn't need to take uh, Mr. Grifter up or Ms. Grifter up on it uh, because i had already made it uh, made my way there. And my personal favorite, uh, YOW anti-fascist writes, You're a climate criminal. And you're just posting openly about it as a customer service complaint. And I was thinking a climate criminal. I've been called many things before. I don't know if that one is one I've been called recently. I should say, no, this one is my favorite. This is from Chuka Ajekum, who is a writer with Rabble, I believe, which is a very, I think is actually an onomatopoeia because it's what it sounds like uh, when you read it. Uh, but Chuka Ajekum writes, a flight like this makes you a willful participant in the crime against humanity that is global climate inequity. One of the worst people on the planet. So next time I take the London to Toronto flight or the Toronto to London flight, I am going to look around and see all these like, uh, you know, grandparents that are going to uh, meet their loved ones or families that are going off on a vacation, kids that are going with their parents to Disneyland. I'm going to just look around them and say, you are all participants in willful participants in the crime against humanity that is global climate inequity. In fact, they should actually put that on the back of the seat in front of you. So for the entirety of the 20 minutes, you know just how terrible a person you are. And it's funny because if I'm self-aware... I could probably come up with like an argument uh, that has like 10 points of support for why I'm just an absolutely terrible person. And one of those would not be that I have flown from the London, Ontario airport to the Toronto airport that like, as far as my sins go, that's not the one I put at the top of the list of my transgressions. But apparently in the climate wars, if I fly from London to Toronto, that makes me a climate criminal. But if I were to fly all the way across the ocean to Egypt for the Sharm el-Sheikh COP27 conference, I would be a climate hero. So I don't know if the emissions stack up there, but I think everyone thought that I was just flying from like point A to point B, which wouldn't be, uh, really wouldn't make any sense. No, it's a connecting flight, people, and you also have no sense of humour. So all of that out of the way, I, I I was like trying. I was getting so annoyed because I'm like I wanted to respond on Twitter, which doesn't work. And I'm like I'm gonna take five minutes and just explain this all on my show, and hopefully the people will come on my side. But if not, apparently I'm an Elisa's climate criminal, so it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> Uh, Let's talk about the Public Order Emergency Commission, which this week is continuing with a little bit of a focus outside of Ottawa, which has been where most of the attention has been in the few weeks up to this point. And Windsor, which was the most disruptive part of this, I think, because of the volume of trade that goes across the Windsor-Detroit border every single day, this was an area that I think changed the game a little bit. It made it so that the Conservatives were less willing to openly support the convoy it also showed how this was really a movement that was turning into whack-a-mole it wasn't just Ottawa things were happening at different points across the country but even so the emergencies act has not been subject to a compelling claim for why it was necessary because Windsor was cleared without the use of the emergencies act and we already knew this but now we're hearing from people under oath just reiterating exactly how true that was. Here's a clip of Windsor Mayor Dilkins testifying that emergency powers were, well, just listen to his words.
0: Um, and just to be clear, the, uh, the blockade on, was cleared and the bridge reopened before the Emergencies Act was invoked. Is that right? Uh, on the 14th, so the 13th around midnight into the 14th, I think the bridge opened, around midnight on the 14th. So the Emergencies Act came was invoked sometime on the 14th. So yes, the answer to your question is yes. Okay, great. So none of the measures in the Emergencies Act were used to clear the blockade since it came after, correct? Correct. Okay, thank you. Those are my questions for you.
2: Ooh, interesting. And that was from the commission's lawyer. That wasn't one of those uh, scary convoy lawyers trapping into a corner. That was just a friendly, cordial, direct examination in which he says, yeah, no, we cleared it without that. And it was reiterated by a representative of the OPP who was involved in that. And that is, uh, I forget the rank of the officer, but Officer Crowley.
3: And just moving on to February 14th, uh, the day that... There was a declaration of emergencies by the federal government mm. um I'm, I'm wondering if it, if you had any because of the injunction was enforced, in force the amcpa was in was in place you had a traffic management plan um is there anything that the emergencies act added um to 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 the situation or helped you in any ways in preventing further blockades I I can't say operationally that we didn't use the Emergencies Act after that, but um, I I can't imagine it didn't uh, dissuade people from coming back. Uh, But that's just a speculation. Uh, We did not use the Emergencies Act at all. So you would say it may have have had a dissuasive effect, but it was not used on the ground. That's correct.
2: That was Windsor Police Service interim Deputy Chief Jason Crowley. So again, Confirming on the record what was already known, because you can see the timeline that the Emergencies Act was not used in Windsor. Now, uh, Mayor Dilkins explained this a little bit in uh, another moment where he talked about how, well, it sent a signal. It sent a signal that we had declared an emergency in Windsor. The Ontario government declared an emergency provincially. The federal government declared an emergency. So it sent a message to people that might want to come back to the bridge. Well, if you read the Emergencies Act, and I would encourage you actually do it because I don't think most people in the media or in the liberal government have read the Emergencies Act. It we, becomes very clear that using it as a deterrent is not one of the rationales. That you could use. Using it to send a signal is not one of the criteria for the Emergencies Act. Using it as a strongly worded letter or a big giant finger wag is not, believe it or not, part of this extremely, extremely powerful piece of legislation. You can't use it just to send a message. You have to use it when there is a national emergency caused by violence, caused by espionage, caused by sabotage, caused by foreign intervention. None of that was present. And no one before this commission, and we're on the uh, back half of this, we're on the back nine to use a sports metaphor, which I hope I'm using correctly because I don't understand sports metaphors. So I just have to like find one that I've heard in a vaguely similar circumstance from someone else. But we're on the back nine. And we are still not hearing anyone explain where those criteria were met. And to the contrary, we're hearing police and government officials at various levels saying that, yeah, the Emergencies Act simply was not necessary to do all the things that we did. And the thing that I find fascinating about all of this, by the way, I'm being like fact-checked in my, in my production chat here. Back nine is a sp- I know back nine is a sports analogy. I said it. That's what I said. I did use... See, I get they my, my team gets so impressed when I use a sports analogy because usually I just, like, stare blankly. I, th- this is not helping The Andrew Lawton is not an elitist argument. So never mind. I am a man of the people with my uh, hockey and golf and uh, football. I'm, I'm a fan of all of the teams, all of the sports. Uh, in any case, the Windsor situation is going to continue to show this story. The Coots situation is going to be very similar. Now, the timeline on Coots is a little bit different, but remember... Coots was under the control of the Alberta government, which rejected and is rejecting the Emergencies Act and its use and is challenging the federal government in court. And the Emergencies Act actually does require provincial buy-in if it's being used in a situation that is solely within one province. So uh, the but Coots happened after is not the slam dunk that the Emergencies Act offenders, who are I think fewer in number than they were a few weeks ago, think it is. So all of this is to say that the narrative that the government has put forward here has absolutely crumbled. And if you watched the testimony last week of Tamara Leach, you would see a woman who even the anti-convoy lawyer, Paul Champ, Conceded is not a national emergency, not a national security threat, didn't run away with the money. This has been one of the most obnoxious rumors that people have peddled online that Tamara Leach was like cashing out in millions of dollars of convoy donations when the whole point is that the convoy never really had access to a substantial sum of the donations. They actually didn't access any of the Give, Send, Go donations. They didn't access uh, more than like, actually they didn't access any of the GoFundMe donations they had a few thousand in e-transfers and then later on they had some crypto donations which the commission acknowledged went directly to truckers $800,000 worth went to truckers in envelopes the rest was seized by the court so the convoy was not a money maker for anyone other than the government that managed to seize all of these assets and put them in an escrow account where they're still sitting pending the result of this like $300 million lawsuit that's being filed against convoy organizers. And and this is significant. And by the way, if you donated $5 to the convoy, the lawyer representing the residents of Ottawa, Paul Champ, is trying to include you as a defendant. He actually wants to expand his lawsuit beyond the organizers, the Tamara Leeches, the Benjamin Dictor's, the Chris Barber's, and he wants to sue anyone who donated to this thing. So if you spent $5 because you said, well, you know, those truckers seem like they are uh, in need of a sandwich or maybe a little bit of fuel, not that $5 of fuel gets you much now, then you are culpable in that lawsuit's eyes. And the court has to, as I understand, still accept that amendment. But this is purely punitive purely punitive and do not forget it that this is not about just making sure the streets were clear this is about making sure that these people who embarrass the government pay for doing it and that's the only thing they want We've got to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the show today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. If you haven't heard it yet, we have a brand new show at True North anchored by our very own Anthony Fury called The Daily Brief. It is a daily podcast and I'll be making an appearance from time to time. So I do hope that uh, doesn't discourage you from subscribing, but do subscribe. You can get all the details at tnc.news where you can also, if you're so inclined, donate to cover our journalism, our reporting on the Public Order Emergency Commission and much else. That is at donate.tnc.news. Thanks very much to all of you. We will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. God bless and good day to you all.
1: Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show.
0: Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.